Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into War for the Planet of the Apes in today's review episode. I can show you the world. Just take a look through my eyes. I'll be trying something a little differently today, guys. I've scripted this entire episode, down to the pause, the colloquialisms, and everything in between. Even this part right now was typed up prior to the recording of the episode. I've always considered taking the time to script my reviews, and haven't found a film that ever sparked my interest in doing so until this one. It was only fitting that a film I would clearly be raving about and touching on many times for the rest of the year be the film I initiate this methodology with. First, my brief Planet of the Apes history, though. If you've read my Letterboxd review for War, or listened to the previous Scavenger Hunt episodes, you'll have some understanding of it already. My first exposure to the Apes franchise was Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, reboot with Mark Wahlberg. I liked it. I didn't know any other version, and even then, I was a huge Burton fan. Wahlberg was fine. I didn't think the Abraham Lincoln ending was silly by comparison. I didn't have anything to compare it to. Then Rise of the Planet of the Apes came out in 2011, and sleepy-eyed James Franco paved the way for a new story to be told in this franchise. The first film was a really good one, and I fell in love with Circus's Caesar, but that was just the tip of the iceberg. When Dawn of the Planet of the Apes came out in 2014 and continued the story, I was thoroughly impressed by Matt Reeves' vision for this world. The transposed portions positions of the apes and humans was impressive and so realistic. The drama between Circus's Caesar and Toby Kebbell's Koba was palpable. Dawn sought to reinforce the story created by Rise and push the conflict bigger and deeper. It succeeded. And it didn't just succeed, it surpassed expectations by including one of the best performances of the year from Andy Circus, along with top-notch visual effects. Although, Dawn would go on to lose the Oscar to Interstellar. That meant there was a lot riding on War to put a neat bow on the top of this trilogy of films. It had to keep pace with the visual effects from Dawn, as well as improve them to new standards like last year's Oscar-winning The Jungle Book. It had to wrap up a story that was growing at a pace that seemed unlikely to end with one more film. It had to find a new way to draw emotion and pathos from Caesar. It had to introduce new characters that could hold their own against the established leads, while pushing all of the recurring characters into new directions. And it had to contend with the blockbuster power of the MCU, DCEU, Transformers, Fast and Furious, Star Wars, Pixar, Disney, and every every other studio franchise around. And here's why it thrives. Here's why War for the Planet of the Apes is in fact better than every MCU film to date, every DCEU film to date, every Transformers, Fast and Furious, Star Wars film, as well as the vast majority of Pixar and Disney's large catalog of films. War for the Planet of the Apes connects the realistic visuals of the new trilogy with the philosophical problems of the original films. Charlton Heston is a fine actor, but he's not half the artist and performer that Andy Serkis is, and the apes from his films in the 60s and 70s don't hold a candle to the visual wizardry involved in bringing an ape extra to life, let alone any of the main players. And 
As fantastic as Rise and Dawn were, neither of them fully embraced the racial or social issues that the original film touched on to wonderful effect. It wasn't until War that all of these pieces came together into a picturesque image of quality filmmaking, performing, and visual effects. Now, I watched the original Planet of the Apes in November for the first time last year, following it up with its sequel in this February. They're quite fresh in my mind, more so than Rise and Dawn even. And the thing I wish I'd seen more of in Dawn is social commentary, status, and the changing of positions within social rankings. And this was something the Heston films did very well. But Rise and Dawn weren't quite as deft. Maybe it was the heavy focus on effects, or the need to give the audience ex- audiences explosions in action, but the dramatic tension was not as taut or pertinent. But War rectified that and did so in splendid fashion. I won't say any more on the film without throwing up a spoiler tag, so here's your final endorsement before we dive into the nitty-gritty. I gave this film a 96. It's not a 100, but it's a damn high score. Rise got a 78. Dawn got a 90. It's currently my highest-rated film of 2017, beating The Big Sick by four points. It bursts onto the Circle of Film Awards scene with a record 10 nominations, more than any film has ever held at any point with every slot full. It's currently receiving nominations for Picture, Director, Male Lead, Male Supporting, Female Supporting, Screenplay, Score, Tactile Effects, Special Effects, and Scene. It's a heavy drama that's also a technical marvel and beautifully crafted. I hope it's recognized at this year's Oscars particularly for Andy Serkis. But I fear we may still be too early in motion capture history to be so lucky. I encourage everyone to go see this movie and its predecessors, if those escaped your purview in the last few years. And now, spoilers. We get a few opening text slides. Each one highlights the words rise, dawn, and war. We find out that a few years have passed between dawn and war. The simian flu that has affected every human being on the planet is now turning humans into mere beasts. uh, Speechless creatures that are treated as inferior. We're not told this early on, but uh, this is is revealed to us over the course of the film. And in some areas, those people are shunned, and others, scientists work on a cure, but is with the colonel. Woody Harrelson's gloomy and visceral performance as the leader in the attack against uh, Caesar's last faction of apes, that those humans are being slaughtered. He explains this to us later in the film, saying that not um, not only are they executing any of their troops that lose the ability to speak, but also burning their property and anything that might spread the disease. He's scared. He summons Caesar, his prisoner at the time, and confesses his fear to where human beings will end up. He sees the social climate shifting and knows that it's only a matter of time before the ape population overtakes the entire planet if nothing is done. He sees the solution as a military one. If there is to be any chance for humanity's survival, it comes with the extinction of apes. Yet, he fails to consider a harmony between the two species. He refuses Caesar's offer of peace early in the film. The the men Caesar sends back to the colonel to pass on a message that as long as the humans leave the jungles alone, the war can be over. 
are brought deeper into the fold. And the life that Caesar spares in the first 15 minutes of the film is the last one standing in Caesar's way as he tries to get his apes to freedom in the last 15 minutes. Gabriel Shavaria isn't given a lot of screen time in the film, but he appears as fully realized a character as any of the others. From his face and actions and the way he looks at Caesar, you see the doubt and apprehension he has over the events that are happening all around him. But it's Harrelson who stands tall in this film, projecting his beliefs and opinions, and the only character that takes the bleak and gray world around them and finds a single hard-hitting truth in it. Apes must perish for humans to survive. I started with Harrelson's Colonel because I think the film does a fantastic job of painting him as a brazen and ruthless man for the first half, only to reveal the true reasons beneath his outer shell during his conversations with Caesar. He is very single-minded, but that does not mean he has no demons he's battling or dilemmas that he struggled with to get to that state. On the other hand, Caesar provide, prevents us, presents us with a constantly fluctuating character that can't seem to reconcile the demons from the previous films, nor the trauma he endures early on in this one. Caesar is plagued by visions of Coba, the ape that started this war, the ape whose tactics may have been suspect and wrong, but whose message begins to seem more and more rational the deeper Caesar becomes entrenched in this fight. Ape must not kill ape. Koba's presence looms over this film as Caesar fends off the human attack force early in the film, forcing his band of apes to retreat to a cave deeper in the jungle. But after his son returns from a search expedition with promise of salvation across the desert... Mad Max Fury Road, anybody? Harrelson and a small team strike at night, killing Caesar's wife and son. Harrelson escapes, severing the lower half of the rope as Caesar tries to catch him. This sequence plays out beautifully. Caesar dodging gunfire and leaping through a waterfall, blindly grasping for the rope that Harrelson is climbing to safety. He latches on, but it only takes the colonel moments to pull out a knife and send Caesar plummeting to the lake at the bottom. And this is our inciting incident. This is the moment that we see what this film is truly about. It's about Caesar and the Colonel Apes and humans' bestial nature and humanity. Caesar offered mercy and peace and was met with death and war. And before Maurice can offer Caesar words that might soothe his heart, vengeance becomes the one thing on Caesar's mind. Vengeance for his family, for the apes he's lost both close and far from his inner circle, and for the situation itself that he did not start. He becomes consumed by the very same hatred that drove Koba to madness in Dawn. And so, as he directs the rest of the apes toward their oasis of safety across the desert, it is with a resolved jaw that Caesar sets off to take down the colonel by himself. Naturally, Maurice, Rocket, and Luca appear and convince him that they are part of this fight too. They have sacrificed and lost as he has. They are with him until the end. The film is not a war. It's not one side fighting against another. It's an idea. It's Caesar seeking a way out of the war that won't stop knocking at his front door. It's the colonel grasping at the last straws of survival for the human race. Neither is without their faults. Neither makes the right decision every time. And as Caesar and his band track a departing company of soldiers back to their border location, they stumble on a father and his daughter. Rocket confronts the father, returning from the woods with firewood. Here again, we see the offer of peace from the apes. The man lowers the bundle of wood as Rocket tells him to keep his hands away from his firearm. In the blink of an eye, the man reaches and is gunned down as the camera pans over to show Caesar. 
And in his face, he shows no mercy or compassion. He shows no sympathy for what happened. He shows annoyance and irritation. He's frustrated because killing this man did not sate his hatred. And rather than see that his hatred will never be sated, he only resolves more strongly to find and kill the colonel. But that's when the film turns yet again. Maurice discovers a small girl, the man's daughter. Caesar is uninterested, telling Maurice that she can't come with them. Maurice, whose humanity is still tugging at his decisions, returns with, I can't leave her. The film cuts to the four apes again traveling, but with the girl riding with Maurice, she can't speak. One of the humans suffering from the disease that renders them without what makes them human. But Amaya Miller, who plays the girl, puts in as good a silent role as I've ever seen. Her performance is beautiful to watch. She turned 13 today, making her somewhere in the 11 to 12 range during the filming of War. Her presence is as powerful as Daphne Keene's in Logan, a young actress going toe-to-toe with someone who has been who has breathed in the character leading their film. Andy Serkis as Caesar, and Hugh Jackman as Logan. I've got both of them in my Supporting Actress nominations right now, and I think they're each fantastic in their own ways. While Daphne Keene has a more rugged and badass physical presence that fits the themes and visual style of Logan very well, Amaya Miller is innocent, uncorrupted, and blissfully impervious to the atrocities occurring around her, brightening, brightening the screen with her pale skin and platinum blonde hair amidst the dark hair of the apes and dark clothes of the soldiers. Later on their trail, Caesar and company find three soldiers shot in the head and dying in the snow. Caesar has already begun to feel the influence of Nova, Amaya Miller's character, on him as he ultimately shows mercy and kills the one man clinging to life. Maurice informs us that these that the three men are just like Nova, speechless. The apes begin to see that the, that the disease has become far more than it was. It's mutating to try to bring the humans that survived it to their knees. And it's the colonel's orders to execute anyone afflicted that keep it at bay from in the entirety of the army. This starts to push Caesar's mindset away from the revenge he has planned. He begins to see the circumstances for the murkiness that they are. And we finally become introduced to Bad Ape. Steve Zahn's character, an ape from the zoo, from a zoo far from Caesar's, whose intelligence grew due to the virus and who taught himself to speak in broken English. He can't understand the sign language that Maurice, Rocket, and Luca used to communicate, though. Bad Ape is played for comedic relief many times throughout the film, but in his comedic moments, he is also a symbol of everything Caesar wants in the world. He wants his apes to not worry about guns being pointed at them. He wants his apes to be happy and to enjoy themselves. He wants to pull away the shroud that has hung over them since Koba brought this war to their doorstep. And we see Caesar and Bad Ape talk as the others sleep about the humans making their base camp at the border facility nearby. While Bad Ape is very resistant to the idea of showing them where it is, Caesar persuades him that it is for the retribution of those that they have lost and the prospect of saving those that might have been captured. When they arrive, they see hundreds of apes imprisoned and forced to work menial labor for no food or water. Caesar's entire faction sent to traverse the desert in search of the oasis never made it. The colonel intercepted them. Before they can devise a plan, two sentries spot them and launch a surprise attack. Rocket and Caesar fend them off and kill them, but Luca is shot only to die moments later. 
and the humanity creeping back into Caesar is rejected instantly. He sends Rocket, Maurice, Bad Ape, and Nova away, resolving to solve this problem himself. It is his vengeance being sought, and he who should bear the weight of the problem. Unfortunately, he ends up captured, prisoner to the colonel, alongside Lake, his dead son's wife or girlfriend. I'm not really sure which, they don't define it in the film. And his younger son, uh, just a child. He becomes a Jesus, Moses, Spartacus figure that offers his own back when he sees another ape being whipped by an ape deserter, no less. Uh, he spends nights tied to two logs crossed in the middle of the encampment, guarded by that same deserter, referred to as a donkey by the humans. Uh, all of the ape deserters are. And even the donkeys are given their own opinions and reasons for their decisions. Everyone is trying to survive, from Caesar to the colonel, and some apes feel the best way to survive is to side with the humans. As Caesar stages a prison break with Riot Rocket, Maurice and Bad Ape find a way through the sewer system that runs beneath the camp. And these are tense and harsh moments, the poop throwing from Rocket to draw guards' attention, the high-wire rescue of the young apes, the colonel's watchful eye, and Nova. In a moment of heartbreaking empathy, Nova walks into the camp, avoiding the watchtower. She approaches Caesar's solitary cage and offers him her doll for solace. She proceeds to give him food and water for that, are, that were denied him earlier. He thanks her, is grateful, and finds the strength to harden his resolve. Rocket distracts the guards to give Nova the chance to escape without being seen, and the next morning, the colonel drags Caesar out of his cage. But not before spying the doll. He picks it up. Questions Caesar before taking it with him. It's at this point that we begin to focus on another part of the story. You see, the labor being performed by the apes is to construct a wall to repel invaders. Not apes, but humans. A faction of humans that decry the colonel's harsh methods and decision to kill the speechless. The colonel believes in his wall and its imposing presence as a means for survival, but just like his belief that killing off the apes will salvage what remains of the human race, the wall is nothing but a dream. The simian flu is already in every human, just like the wall is made of wood and rock, not things that repel an airstrike and heavy firepower. When the escape comes, it coincides with the attack from the other humans. During the confusion, Caesar scrambles to the colonel's quarters, his revenge finally at his fingertips. A gun in his hand, his finger on the trigger. He stands above the colonel with a weapon aimed at his head, but it isn't the colonel that stares back at him. It's nothing more than an animal, a speechless creature. The camera shows Nova's doll beside the colonel's bed. Harrelson reaches out and cocks the gun, begging Caesar to pull the trigger, and finally, Caesar's humanity and mercy went out. He sets down the gun and steps back, leaving the colonel to do the deed himself. The invaders break through, sending Caesar in a hasty retreat with only enough time to grab a strap of grenades. The donkey that whipped and tortured Caesar is on the wall, aiding the colonel's forces in their bid to repel the attackers. While grabbing a rocket launcher, he sees Caesar with the grenades, preparing to launch one at a leaking oil tankard. But before Caesar can loose the grenade, he's struck by a crossbow bolt. Gabriel Shavaria's preacher's weapon of choice. 
Caesar falls to the ground as Preacher appears with a second bolt loaded into the crossbow. Caesar's mercy returns to haunt him, a, a recent echo of the past, his own safety and the lives of his apes undone by the action he took early in the film. Outside of the wall, fleeing apes are being gunned down like monkeys in a barrel. As Preacher prepares to finish Caesar off, he suddenly erupts in fire and explodes. The donkey killed him, despite the cries of the humans around him. Caesar struggles to his feet and throws the grenade, setting off a chain of explosions inside the camp as he slides into the hole down to the sewers. On the other side of the camp, Caesar watches as the invading force overrun, overruns the border facility and begin to cheer. The battle won. He climbs atop a rock and slowly turns his head to the left. The camera fixes on Caesar with the soldiers clad in white behind him. One by one, they notice Caesar and turn toward him. With their goggle faces frozen in silence which is one of the most affecting shots in this film. Before anyone can draw a weapon, they turn to follow Caesar's gaze to the left. High above them, the explosions have started an avalanche. The snow is cascading down the mountainside, destroying everything in its path. Caesar darts toward the mountain. The men flee in terror. The rest of the apes find the nearest tree and climb as high as they can to wait out the rush of snow. Caesar barely makes it to a sturdy enough trunk. When the avalanche subsides, the apes calmly recognize that they survived as the humans became buried in the snow. The apes are then shown to have make, made it to their oasis, unlike Fury Road, which decided that the only way to make a chase movie more energetic was to go back the way they came. War decides that the best bow of hope to tie at the end of this trilogy is to make Caesar's son's sacrifice worth something. The film ends with Maurice and Caesar by themselves as Caesar slowly bleeds to death from the wound given to him by preacher. For the wound given to him by preacher, Caesar tells Maurice that the apes are strong with or without him to lead them. A moment of clarity that has long eluded Caesar in war. Maurice's face falls as the camera pulls away, showing the rest of the apes beginning to realize what happened, and turning in support and solidarity. A pitch perfect ending to a franchise that has never given us easy answers. I don't know what else I can say. It's a film that I cherish and treasure, having seen it only once and within the last few days. I can't wait to revisit this trilogy in a more condensed fashion. I only saw Dawn once, and it's been three years between the two films. So with that being said... Uh, uh, that's, kinda, that's the end. That's all I've written. Um, so this is now me ad-libbing to sort of close out this episode. Uh, I ended, it ended up being about 3,750 words that I wrote uh, for this review, and it took roughly 23 minutes um, when you, you don't include like the spoiler tag or, or the intro, which is not too bad. I, I'm impressed. I, I thought I was gonna, I was surprised I was able to come up with so many words, but when you follow the plot of the movie, it becomes a lot easier to, to expand and, and stretch out what you're saying so uh if you really like this format and want me to do this more often uh let me know um you know it's not difficult it's just 
uh, more time consuming, but it, I'm, I'm happy to, to acquiesce to the request of a fan for sure. Um, and you know, even if I, I, even if everyone wanted me to do it more this way, I wouldn't do every episode, every review episode this way or any, every episode in general this way. It's just, it's just far too time consuming, but I will, but specifically films that I'm very passionate about, uh, for one reason or another, I'm, I'm definitely able to, to take the time necessary to give them their due as it were. And I think that this film, for me, certainly deserves all of this and more. I can't begin to explain how much I enjoyed it. Uh, I'm, I'm just I'm just so thrilled to to have seen it, and and so happy that it, it lived up to my expectations. Um, so that's War for the Planet of the Apes, the final film in the rebooted Rise of the Planet of the Apes trilogy, um, directed by Matt Reeves, starring Andy Serkis and Woody Harrelson. This is my new number one film from 2017, and the current leader in nominations for the 2017 Circle of Film Awards. It is not unbeatable. Again, a 96 is very, very good. Um... Last year, we topped out at 97 from me, um, but many of the years before that reached 99 or 100, so there is plenty of room for another film to steal that spot away. But for the time being, War for the Planet of the Apes enjoys a nice, comfy four-point bump uh, uh, bridge between itself and number two film of the year for me so far, The Big Sick. Thank you so much for listening. <clears throat> if you have any comments, concerns, questions, or answers, you can direct those to circleoffilm at gmail.com. If you're interested in the spreadsheet or the film podcast that I am on right now, I'm butchering these words, the Circle of Film podcast or myself, or if you want to see previous episodes or look at the Circle of Film Award nominations or look at the Scavenger Hunt Superlatives, head over to circleoffilm.com. Uh, where these things are generally updated on the spot. And finally, as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same goodnight. I know she'll never leave me, even as she fades from view. So long, farewell, I'll be the same Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute.